Okay, we're going to go over another fairly bulky section here with the prosthetics and orthotics section. Uh, we'll start with the gait cycle, which is a single sequence of functions of one limb, um, and it is essentially the functional unit of gait. One gait cycle is also referred to as a stride. Each stride comprises two steps. Stride length is the linear distance between corresponding successive points of contact of the same foot from heel strike to heel strike of the same foot. And step length is the linear distance in the plane of progression between corresponding successive contact points <coughs> of opposite feet um, from heel strike on one foot to heel strike on the other. <coughs> the gait cycle is comprised of two phases, stance phase and swing phase. The stance phase is the time period uh, which the limb is in contact with the ground. Stance phase is divided into five periods. The swing phase is the time during which the foot is in the air um, for limb advancement. Swing phase is divided into three phases. The normal distribution of time during the gait cycle at walking speed is 60% for stance and 40% for swing. Walking faster increases the time spent in stance phase, increasing the time spent in swing phase. You have double limb support, which is the time during which both feet are in contact with the floor. Both beginning and end of stance phase are considered to be double, double support period. Usually compromise or comprise about 20 to 20% of the gait, uh, normal gait cycle versus 80% of single limb support. Single limb support is the time during uh, the time period that starts when the opposite foot is lifted for the swing phase. Um, the amount of time spent during double limb support decreases the speed of walking increases. When there's no longer a double limb support period, the person is considered to be running. Uh, cadence is the number of steps per unit of time. And a comfortable walking speed is about 80 meters a minute or 3 miles per hour. Speed slows by either reducing the cadence or by decreasing step, step or stride length. The center of gravity is typically lo located 5 centimeters anterior to the S2 vertebrae. The center of gravity is displaced um, 5 centimeters horizontally and 5 centimeters vertically during an average adult male step. The base of support is defined as the space outlined by the feet and any, device, any assistive device in contact with the ground. Falling is avoided if the center of gravity remains positioned over the base of support. The normal base of support is the distance between the heels is about 6 to 10 centimeters. There are five subdivisions of, of the stance phase. Uh, some people like the mnemonic, I like my tea pre-sweetened, which is ILMTP. So you have initial contact, which is the instant the foot contacts the ground, followed by the loading response, which is the time period immediately following initial contact up until the contralateral extremity is lifted off the ground during which the weight shift occurs. The body has the lowest center of gravity during loading response. Mid-stance is the time period from lift off of the contralateral extremity on the ground to the point where the uh, ankles of both extremities are aligned in a frontal or coronal plane. The body has the highest center of gravity during uh, mid-stance. Terminal stance is the time from ankle alignment in the frontal plane to just prior to initial contact of the contralateral or swinging extremity. And then you have pre-swing, which is the time from the initial contact of the contralateral extremity to just prior to the to lift off to lift up the ipsilateral extremity from the ground where you have unloading weight, a weight occurring. So again, this is initial contact, loading response, mid-stance, terminal stance, and pre-swing. These are previously known as heel strike, foot flat, mid-stance, heel off, and toe off. The swing phase also has a mnemonic where you can say, in my teapot, IMT, where you have initial swing, which is lift, off, lift of the extremity from the ground to a position of maximal knee flexion. Mid-swing is immediately following knee flexion to vertical tibia position, and terminal swing, which is following vertical tibia position to just prior to initial contact. Again, initial swing, mid-swing, terminal swing, previously called acceleration, mid-swing, and deceleration. 
There are six determinants of gait as well. Um, these factors are applied in normal human gait to minimize the excursion of the body center of gravity and help produce forward progression with the least expenditure of energy. The six determinants of gait are um, pelvic rotation, pelvic tilt, knee flexion and stance phase, foot mechanisms, knee mechanisms, and lateral displacements of the hip. There's a nice chart on page 474, uh, where you go, uh, table 772, which goes through this. You have pelvic rotation, where the pelvic rotates medially or anteriorly on the swinging leg side, lengthening the limb as it prepares to accept weight. With four degree pelvic rotation in either direction during double support, the limbs are essentially lengthened in the would-be lowest point of gait cycle, preventing a sudden drop of the, of the center of gravity. Pelvic tilt is when the pelvis on one side of the, of the swinging leg, on the side of the swinging leg, opposite to the weight-bearing leg, is lowered four to five degrees. This maintains the center of gravity at mid-stance. You have knee flexion and stance, which is early knee flexion with, with knee flexion at foot strike about 15 degrees. The bending of the knee reduces the vertical elevation of the body at mid-stance and would be the highest point in the gait cycle by shortening the hip to ankle distance. This lowers the center of gravity by minimizing its vertical displacement decreasing the energy expenditure. It also tends to absorb the shock of impact at heel strike by lengthening the contraction of the quadriceps. Foot mechanisms, or, such as ankle flexion and extension mechanisms, at heel strike after um, ankle plantar flexion smoothens the curve of the falling pelvis. It is associated with con uh, controlled plantar flexion during the first part of the stance. They have knee mechanisms, which after mid-stance, the knee extends as the ankle plantar flexes and the foot supinates to restore the length and the to the leg and diminish the fall of the pelvis at the opposite heel strike. And lateral displacement of the pelvis. There is displacement toward the stance limb. The net center of gravity of the body must lie above the base of support, which is the stance foot. There are some tables as well that go through gait pathology and probable causes. Um, but I'm going to go through uh, some of them here. So you have a Trendelenburg gait, which is a gluteus medius gait. When the hip abductor muscles, specifically gluteus medius and minimus, are weak, the stabilizing effect of these examples during gait is lost. So the example is if you stand on the right leg, um, the left pelvis drops. It's called uncompensated gait, or uncompensated right Trendelenburg gait. So it's the weakness over the stance leg. The contralateral pelvis drops because the ipsilateral hip abductors do not stabilize the pelvis to prevent the swing. When a patient walks, if he swings his body to the right to compensate for the left hip drop, it is a compensated Trendelenburg gait. The patient exhibits an excessive lateral lean in which the trunk is thrust laterally to keep the center of gravity over the stance leg. You also have energy expenditure during, uh, during ambulation. Um, Energy demands required to return to normal ambulatory function are high, and even the healthiest amputees, so this is after amputation, and the most healthiest amputees cannot achieve normal gait in terms of velocity, cadence, or energy consumption. Wheelchair propulsion as well is measured by the, you can have measured, measure the energy expenditure of wheelchair propulsion, propulsion in patients with uh, paraplegia. In the subjects studied, there's only a 9% increase in energy expenditure compared to ambulation in normal subjects. With crutch watching, walking, crutch walking requires more energy than walking with a prosthesis. Muscles that need strengthening in preparation for crutch walking include latissimus dorsi, triceps, pec major, quads, hip extensors, and hip abductors. There's a nice chart on page 475 where you have the muscles that are active during the gait cycle, and it goes through eccentric versus concentric. 
I'm not going to go through that here. It's a good thing to review. This can be quite, this can be tested as well. Some of the other gate pathology and probable causes. Um, you have initial contact, where your pathology may be foot slap, and it may have moderately weak dorsiflexors. At initial contact through mid stance, you may have genu recurvatum, excessive foot supination, excessive trunk extension, excessive or excessive trunk flexion. Genu recurvatum may be due to weak, short, or spastic quadriceps, compensated hamstring weakness, Achilles tendon contracture, plantar flexor spasticity. Excessive foot supination can be compensated forefoot valgus deformity, pes cavus, or short limb. Excessive trunk extension may be due to weak hip extensors or flexors, hip pain, decreased knee range of motion, and for trunk flexion, you may have a weak glute max and quadriceps or a hip flexion contracture. Going from initial contact for the pre-swing, you may have excessive knee flexion, which can be due to hamstring contracture, increased ankle dorsiflexion. When you dorsiflex, you get more knee, knee flexion, weak plantar flexors, long limb uh, and hip flexion contracture, excessive medial femoral rotation with tight medial hamstrings, antiverted femoral shaft, weakness of opposite muscle groups, excessive lateral femoral rotation with tight lateral hamstrings, retroverted femoral shaft, weakness for the opposite muscle group, a wide base of support, which is hip abductor, uh, muscle contracture, instability, genu valgum, and leg discrepancy, and narrow base of support with hip adductor and muscle contracture genu varum. There are several others that can be seen here. Um, important ones to note, uh, like we already talked about, were the Turnbellenberg gait, uh, foot drop are probably most important, but there's several other ones that you could look at as well. With regards to the energy expenditure, this is one that can be very uh, commonly tested as well, and maybe uh, is, is also clinically relevant to discuss with patients. So with the level of amputation, with the Symes amputation, you have about 15% increased metabolic cost above normal. With a traumatic transtibial um, below the knee amputation, you would have a 25% uh, increased metabolic cost. If it's a shorter BKA, it may be up to 40%, and a longer BKA may be down to 10%. A traumatic bilateral BKA is approximately 40%, 41%. Traumatic transfemoral AKA is about 60 to 70%. Traumatic bilateral AKA is greater than 200%. So that's, one of the, that's the biggest one. Traumatic AKA versus BKA is 118%. A vascular transtibial BKA is 40% compared to the 20% of traumatic transtibial BKA. And a vascular transfemoral AKA is 100% compared to the 60 to 70 for traumatic. So moving on to amputation of prosthetics. A prosthesis is an artificial substitute for a missing body part. In 1996, approximately 1.2 million persons were living with an amputation. Prevalence was approximately 1.6 million in 2005, with projections that prevalence may double by year 2050. It's estimated that one out of every 200 people in the United States has had, has had an amputation. Approximately 185,000 amputations occur in the United States each year. The main causes of amputation are dysvascular disease, including diabetes and peripheral artery disease, uh, trauma, cancer, and congenital. The rates of cancer and trauma-related amputation do seem to be decreasing, and the rates of dysvascular amputation are increasing. Incidence of congenital limb deficiencies are remaining uh, stable. The risk of limb loss increases with age, uh, greatest for risk over uh, age 65. And the amputation due to non-vascular causes, nearly half of the individuals who had an amputation due to vascular disease will die within five years. Approximately 64% of all amputations due to dysvascular disease occur 65 or older. And 75 to 93% of lower extremity amputations are the result of vascular disease. 
African Americans have two to five times greater risk of dysvascular amputation. Diabetes is a major risk factor, contributing to two-thirds of all lower extremity amputations. Among those with diabetes who have lower extremity amputations, up to 55% will require amputation, uh, with the majority limited to digital amputations. Upper limb amputations account for approximately two-thirds of all trauma-related amputations. So it's um, upper extremity trauma, lower extremity dysvascular, specifically diabetes. Males are more at risk of trauma-related amputations than females. So going through upper limb amputations, for acquired limb amputations, the most common cause is trauma, with the leading cause of acquired amputation in upper extremity, approximately 80%, occurring primarily in men aged 15 to 45 years old. Um, cancer and tumors are second, and vascular complications of disease are third. There are several levels that we'll go through, um, essentially from distal to proximally of transphalangeal, transmetacarpal, transcarpal, wrist disc articulation, uh, transradial below the elbow amputation, elbow disarticulation, transhumeral above the elbow um, above the elbow amputation, approximately six and a half centimeters or more proximal to the elbow joint, shoulder disarticulation, and a four-quarter amputation. So with finger or transphalangeal uh, amputation can occur at the distal, uh, at the DIP, distal phalangeal joint, the PIP, or the MCP. Transmetacarpal amputation at wrist and amputation. Uh, and wrist amputation are seen less because they have decreased functional outcomes. Multiple finger amputations, including thumb and partial hand amputation, and those through the wrist need to be considered carefully in view of possible functional and cosmetic um, implications of prosthesis fitting and restoration. Inappropriate choice of amputation site can result in prosthesis and a prosthesis with a disproportionate length or width. Partial hand amputation should be carefully planned to ensure adequate residual sensation and movement. For these amputations, a prosthesis may not be necessary. Surgical reconstruction may be more appropriate choice of treatment to preserve or enhance function while maintaining sensation and the residual partial hand. There is little value in salvaging a partial hand with no prehension or ability to hold or grasp. In a mangled hand, amputation is considered if irreparable damage occurs to four of the six basic parts. Six basic parts being skin, vessels, skeleton, nerves, extensor, and flexor tendons. The initial goal is to save all feasible length. In part, so moving through these parts specifically, with wrist, uh, wrist disc articulation, let me start that again. A wrist disarticulation spares the distal radial ulnar articulation and thus preserves full forearm supination and pronation. Socket designs for this level are tapered and flattened distally to form an oval that, follow, that allows the amputee uh, full active supination and pronation, thus avoiding having to reposition or to preposition the terminal device for functional activities. A special thin wrist unit is used to minimize the overall length of the prosthesis because of the extremely long residual limb. If cosmesis is of most importance to the amputee, a long below elbow amputation may be a more appropriate amputation level. For transradial or below elbow amputations, um, it's the most common level and allows a high level of function, functional recovery in the majority of cases. It can be uh, performed at three levels, very short, um, less than 35% of the residual limb length, uh, short, between 35 and 55% of the residual limb length, and long, 55 to 90%. The long below elbow residual limb retains 60 to 120 degrees of supination and pronation, and the short below elbow resi uh, residual limb retains less than 60 degrees. The long forearm residual limb is preferred when optimal body-powered prosthetic restoration is the goal. 
it is the ideal level for the patient who is expected to perform physically demanding work. A residual limb length of 60 to 70% is preferred when optimal externally powered prosthetic restoration is the goal. This length typically permits good function and cosmesis while allowing adequate space for electronic components. The short and very short transradial amputation levels can complicate suspension and limit elbow flexion strength and elbow, and elbow range of motion. Moving on to elbow disarticulation, it has surgical and prosthetic advantages and disadvantages. Some of the pros are the surgical technique permits reduction in surgery time and blood loss, provides improved prosthetic self-suspension by permitting the use of less encumbering sockets, and reduces the rotation of the socket on the residual limb compared to the transhumeral level of amputation. It also allows greater lifting, pulling, and pushing power compared to above elbow amputations. Some of the cons are that it has a major disadvantages are the marginal cosmetic appearance caused by the necessary external elbow mechanism, as well as the current limitations in technology that impede the use of externally powered elbow mechanisms at this level of amputation. These drawbacks often outweigh the advantages in the long run. In the patient for whom bilateral transhumeral amputation is the alternative, elbow disarticulation is the more desirable level when feasible in spite of possible cosmetic problems. There is no risk of bone spur or hydrotropic ossification uh, formation at the elbow disarticulation level. A transhumeral or above elbow amputation can't be, uh, can also be performed at three levels. The humeral neck with the residual limb length of less than 30%, a short transhumeral between 30 to, 30, uh, 30 to 50%, and a standard transhumeral with between 50 to 90% of residual limb length. The longer residual limb length, up to 90% of humeral length, will give the best control and function of uh, prosthesis. These three amputation levels in most cases require similar prosthetic components, which can be externally powered, body powered, passive, or have a combination of these. In above elbow amputations with residual limb lengths greater than 35%, usually the proximal trim line of the socket extends to within one centimeter of the acromion, and the socket is suspended by either a figure eight or shoulder, sa shoulder saddle and chest strap suspension system. Residual limbs shorter than 30% will be fitted as a shoulder, dis uh, shoulder disarticulation. For the shoulder disarticulation and four-quarter amputations, fortunately the shoulder disarticulation and, and four-quarter amputations are seen with less frequency than amputations at other levels. In most cases, they are made necessary as part of a surgical intervention to remove a malignant lesion. Patients with these le uh, levels of amputation are the most difficult to fit with a functional prosthesis due to the number of joints to be replaced and the problems related to maintaining secure suspension of the prosthesis. For shoulder disarticulation and forecord amputations, the socket extends into the thorax to suspend and stabilize the prosthesis. Prosthetic alignment is more successful in those who are young, healthy, and male. Prosthetic components are similar to those of transhumor prosthesis with the addition of the shoulder unit, <coughs> which may be fixed or passive positioning of the shoulder joint in flexion extension and abduction adduction. The joint may be provided with controls in addition to the body-powered or externally-powered uh, control mechanisms needed for the elbow, wrist, and hand. Functional prosthetic use in the four-quarter amputation is less successful because suspension is difficult to maintain. In some cases, a better option is to provide a passive cosmetic prosthesis. Special considerations should be made to provide a shoulder cap to allow the patient to wear clothing more easily and improve cosmesis. The use of an ultralight passive prosthesis is usually well accepted in these patients. Moving on to the actual prosthetic devices for the upper limb, terminal devices and wrist units and upper extremity prosthesis. So the prosthetic components for upper extremity amputations include terminal devices, 
wrist units, sockets, elbow hinges, and shoulders. Terminal devices, wrist units will be discussed right now with the rest um, following that when we talk about specific amputation levels. So the terminal devices, most patients who suffer an upper limb amputation and undergo prosthetic restoration require a terminal device for their prosthesis. They are used in all upper limb prostheses for amputation at the wrist level and above. Terminal devices lack sensory feedback and have limited mobility and dexterity. There are a, ver a variety of prosthetic terminal devices available and include passive, body-powered, and externally-powered hooks and hands. <coughs> the passive terminal devices are lighter and have no functional mechanisms and provide no, no grasp. They are a passive hand intended for cosmetic use. There is uh, only static functional use. There are some also flexible, flexible passive terminal devices with mitt-shaped terminal devices that can fit into a glove or a mitt for sports and other activities. There are specialty terminal, terminal devices with adapters for sports equipment and hand tools or kitchen to, uh, utensils as well. <coughs> Body-powered terminal devices, such as hooks or hands, can be voluntary opening or voluntary closing uh, types. Prosthetic hands provide a three-jaw three chuck pinch. A three-jaw chuck pinch involves grip with the thumb, index, and middle fingers. And hooks provide the equivalent of a lateral or tip pinch. In a normal hand, lateral or key grip um, involves contact with the pulp of the thumb with the lateral aspect of the corresponding finger. So voluntary opening terminal devices are the most common practical type. The device is maintained in closed position by uh, rubber bands or tension springs. The amputee uses cable control harness powered by proximal muscles to open the terminal devices against the force of the rubber bands or, or spring. Usually it's shoulder abduction and humeral flexion that causes this. <coughs> to grasp patients release the open terminal device of an object and the rubber bands or spring provide the prehensile force. The pinch force is determined by the number and type of rubber bands or springs. Each rubber band provides about one pound of pinch force. To control the amount of prehensile force, the patient must generate a continued opening force. For voluntary closing terminal device, it's more physiological function than a voluntary opening. The device is maintained in an open position and has to be closed voluntarily by pulling the, with a cable or a harness system to grasp an object. To release, the patient releases the pull on the harness and a spring in the terminal device opens it. The maximum prehensile force is determined by the strength of the individual. Disadvantages include prolonged prehension requires constant pull on the harness and the terminal device remains awkwardly open when not in use. Uh, I was once asked when you might want to consider a voluntary closing terminal device as opposed to a voluntary opening terminal device and it has to go with the safety of the individual and the um, the example that was given was someone who is doing water sports like windsurfing. Uh, for example, if he's holding on with a voluntary closing terminal device, his power is making it close, and if he falls into the water, it automatically opens so that he is able to fall and not get dragged along. <coughs> you also have externally powered or electric powered terminal devices that are controlled by switches or myoelectric signals and are powered with energy provided from external batteries. The electric powered terminal device can, ha uh, can be hand-like, um, non-hand-like or hook-shaped in appearance. A myoelectric controlled terminal device uses surface electrodes placed on the muscles of the residual limb, and devices can have a digital or proportional control sy uh, system. Digital control system is an on-off system, and a proportional control system is the stronger the muscle contraction produces the signal, the faster the, the, the action occurs. There's also a micro-switch controlled terminal device, which uh, can use either a push-down 
I push button switch, or I pull switch to activate the terminal device. Uh, for prosthetic wrist units, uh, wrist units are used for attaching terminal devices to prosthesis, as well as providing pronation and supination to place the terminal device in its proper position. The rotation function is, is passive. The amputee rotates the terminal device with, uh, in the wrist unit with his sound hand or by pushing it against a, a part of the body or other uh, surface to produce a, either pronation or supination. The wrist unit also permits interchange of the terminal devices. A wrist flexion unit allows terminal device to be in flex position, facilitating ability to perform activities close to the body. This is important for bilateral upper extremity um, amputees. Uh, it's typically not necessarily needed in unilateral because the other hand can do most of them, but in bilateral they need flexion for activities daily living like feeding, wiping, um, or buttoning. Electric wrist rotator units are also available and are generally considered for bilateral upper extremity amputees. You don't add components uh, unnecessarily. They increase weight and cost can break or um, they, they increase weight and cost, they can break and they can need repair. Um, there are two types of wrist units, friction control and locking. Friction wrists permit pronation and supination of the terminal device and hold it in a selected position by means of friction derived by a compressed rubber, band, rubber washer or from forces applied to the stud of the terminal device. With locking, wrists permit manual rotation and then lock the terminal device in its fixed position. The advantage to this is the locking mechanism prevents inadvertent rotation of the terminal device in the wrist unit when a heavy object is grasped. There are two types of wrist flexion units, add-on and combination. Add-on is worn between the wrist and the terminal device and allows manual positioning of the terminal device in either uh, the straight or the flex position. And a combination type combines a friction wrist with a wrist flexion component in one and provides the setting and locking in one position. Moving on to transradial or below elbow amputation prosthesis, in addition to terminal devices and wrist units, a transradial amputation with a body-powered prosthesis will need a socket, elbow hinge, um, upper arm, cuff, or pad, and harness and control system. So sockets for transradial amputations must provide a comfortable but stable total contact interface with the residual limb to avoid inadvertent motion and prevent uncomfortable con uh, concentrations of pressure. Must also be um, have efficient energy transfer from the residual limb to the prosthetic device, secure suspension, and adequate appearance. To accomplish these goals, most sockets are double-walled with the inner wall giving total contact fit and the outer wall matching the contour of the length of the contralateral forearm. Approximately, the socket extends posteriorly to the olecranon and anteriorly to the uh, elbow crease. The, the shorter the residual limb, the closer the, is the trim to the crease. Prosthetic socks or a soft interface material may be used to make the socket fit comfortably and to allow for some accommodation of volume changes. Special socket uh, designs include a split socket, which consists of a total contact segment encasing the residual limb and connected by hinges to a separate forearm shell to which the wrist unit and the terminal device are attached. It is sometimes used in patients who have very short residual limbs so that the special elbow hinges can be used to increase available, available joint range of motion or to incorporate an elbow lock mechanism in the prosthesis. Um, a Munster socket is also a self-suspended socket. It's an alternative to the split socket uh, for short transradial amputations is the Munster type socket design. In this, the socket and forearm are set in a position of initial flexion and socket encloses the olecranon and the epicondyle of the humerus. The intimate residual limb encapsulation, flexion attitude, and high trim lines provide suspension. 
although there is some limitation in the range of flexion extension. This is com compensated by pre-flexing the socket. When this type of suspension is used, a figure 9 harness can be used for control purposes only. For control purposes only. With these prostheses, the patient can operate the terminal device in common positions and still apply full torque about the elbow. Although these techniques yield less elbow flexion than the split socket, the reduction in force requirements and the ease of use more than compensate for this limitation. Elbow hinges uh, for transradial amputations uh, connect the socket to a cuff on the upper arm and are important for suspension and stability. The types include a flexible elbow hinge, which is used primarily to suspend the forearm socket and permits active pronation and supination of the forearm. And it's used where sufficient voluntary pronation and supination are available to make it desirable to maintain these functions. Wrist disarticulations and long transradial amputations are most common. You also have a rigid elbow hinge, which can be used in short transradial amputations when normal elbow flexion is, present, is present, but there is no voluntary uh, pronation or supination, and more stability is needed. Types include single-axis, polycentric, and a step-up design, which is used by split-socket prosthesis in very short transradial amputations where flexion is limited. By virtue of a gear or double-pivot arrangement, these hinges uh, permit the residual limb to drive the prosthetic forearm through an increased range of motion. Disadvantages in this is that it takes twice the force, so the energy cost doubles to provide the same amount of flexion as a single-axis hinge unit. Uh, locking elbow joints are used only if there is significant elbow flex or weakness. Cuffs and pads are used, except in the monster socket. A half cup or triceps, uh, let, me, let me start that over. Except in the monster socket, a half cuff or triceps pad with an appropriate elbow hinge is used on the upper arm to connect the socket to the harness and help furnish socket suspension and stability. It is also serves as an anchor for the cable control action point. The half cuff is used in the majority of short transradial fittings. The triceps pad is used with long transradial fittings, wrist disarticulation, and transmetacarpal prostheses. Uh, moving on to suspension systems for transradial, the functions of the uh, below elbow harness are to suspend prostheses from the shoulder uh, so the socket is held firmly in the residual limb, utilize body motions as a source of power or force, and transmit the force via a cable system to operate the terminal device. And there are three types, a figure eight or O-ring harness is the most commonly used harness. You have the, uh, the axial loop worn on the sound side acts as a, re a reaction point for the transmission of body force to the terminal device. The anterior suspension trap of the involved side gives additional support for pulling or lifting and acts like as the attachment point for the elbow loading uh, strap on a body powered above elbow prosthesis. And a figure nine harness is often employed with a self-suspended transradial socket or a Munster socket that requires a harness only for controlling the terminal device for uh, long residual limbs and suction sockets. It consists of an axle loop and a controlled attachment strap. The pros are that it is lighter and provide uh, greater freedom of comfort by the elimination of the usual front strap, front support strap and triceps pad or cuff. A truss strap or uh, a, a chest strap with shoulder saddle can also be considered, and it's used when the patient cannot tolerate the axilla loop, and it's used with those who will be doing some heavy lifting as well. There are also uh, cable control systems. The typical control cable system for transmission of power to the prosthesis consists of uh, flexible standard, or strand, flexible stranded stainless steel cable, which slides within a flex, uh, flexible housing. The cable is attached proximally at the harness and distally at the elbow or terminal device. 
there are two types of cable systems. The single control cable system with a Bowden cable system is used in the transradial single control cable system and consists of one cable to transmit body power for a single purpose to operate the terminal device. It consists of a continuous length of flexible housing through which the cable slides. The housing is fastened by a, a base plate and retainer to the forearm shell and by a housing crossbar assembly to the cuff at the triceps pad. These housing retainers also serve as reaction points when the force is applied to the cable. The muscle movements used to open the terminal device are forward humeral flexion and biscapular abduction. You can also have a dual control cable system with a split cable or fair lead cable system, which is typically used in the transhumeral control cable system, as well as in very short transradial or split socket prosthesis with a locking hinge. It consists of one cable with two functions, to flex the elbow unit when the elbow is unlocked and to operate the terminal device when the elbow is locked. The cable is held in place and guided by separate lengths of housing. And the pieces of housing are fastened with retainers at points when the uh, cable must be supported or operated through an angle. Since the system must provide force for elbow flexion and operation of the terminal device, two fair lead housings are necessary. The proximal lead through which the cable slides when the, when the elbow is flexed and the distal lead through which the cable slides when the terminal device is operated. So the big thing here is um, what the two cables are for. They, they, it's one, well, it's one cable with two functions. When it flexes the elbow unit when the elbow is locked and it operates the terminal device, excuse me, flexes the elbow unit when the elbow is unlocked and operates the terminal device when the elbow is locked. You can't do them both at the same time. For elbow disarticulation prosthesis, there are a variation of a transhumeral prosthesis needed. The socket is flat and broad distally to conform to epicondyles of the distal humerus, which provides self-suspension and allows for internal and external rotation of the humerus. The length of residual limb requires use of external elbow, uh, of external elbow joint with cable-operated locking mechanisms. There's a harness and control system the same for the transhumeral prosthesis. Um, in addition to the terminal device and wrist unit, a transhumeral body-powered prosthesis consists of a forearm, elbow unit, an upper arm, a socket, a harness, and control cable systems. The terminal devices and wrist units are the same as those used previously, but the socket, elbow unit, harness, and control systems differ in uh, several respects from those used in the transradial prosthesis. Um, for sockets, uh, the sockets for transhumeral amputations um, are similar as in a transradial prosthesis. The transhumeral socket is used is usually of a double wall construction with the inner wall providing a snug total contact fit and the outer shell providing appropriate length and shape. The lateral socket wall extends to the acromion and the medial socket wall is flattened below the axilla to help prevent inadvertent socket rotation. The soft interface material is often used to make a socket fit more comfortably. When an amputation occurs at above the elbow joint, elbow function is applied by the use of an elbow unit, which provides uh, for elbow flexion and for locking in various degrees of uh, flexion. Elbow locking systems are divided into two subtypes, external or outside locking elbow, which is used with elbow disarticulations because there's not enough space for an internal locking mechanism, and internal locking elbow, which is used for transhumeral and shoulder prostheses. In an internal elbow unit, it's preferred because of uh, greater mechanical durability and cosmetically more appealing, which is used in the level of amputation four centimeters or more proximal to the level of the epicondyles. An external elbow unit is used when the residual limb extends more distally than four centimeters to the level of the epicondyles to maintain a, um, the elbow joint center uh, equal to that of the non-amputated side.
Both types of elbows are flexed in the dual control cable system and locked at the desired flexion angle by a separate elbow lock control cable, which is attached at one end to the elbow mechanism and at the other end to the anterior suspension strap. The locking mechanism operates the anterior, uh, the, excuse me, the alternator principle. Locking and unlocking actions alternate with each control cable cycle of tension and relaxation. For amputees who have difficulty flexing their prosthetic forearm, an accessory in the form of a spring assist for elbow flexion may be provided for the use of the internal elbow. In transhumeral and shoulder prostheses, passive humeral rotation is accomplished by means of a turntable between the elbow unit and the upper arm uh, shell or socket. As is the case in the wrist, or wrist unit, friction between the elbow unit and the turntable permits control of the rotation to maintain the desired plane of the elbow operation. For transhumeral uh, harnesses, in addition to suspending the prosthesis from the shoulders, the transhumeral, harness, the transhumeral harness must transmit power to flex the prosthetic forearm, to lock and unlock the elbow unit, and to operate the terminal device. The harness designs most frequently used for transhumeral prostheses are modifications of the basic figure eight and chest strap patterns with the transradial prostheses. So a body-powered control cable system and transhumeral prosthesis can be a, a dual control or fairly control cable system is used to transmit force to two functions, elbow flexion and terminal device operation. Elbow locking and unlocking are controlled by a second cable, the elbow lock cable. When the elbow is extended and unlocked, flexion of the shoulder with humeral flexion assisted by biscapular abduction transmits force to the uh, forearm lever flexing the elbow to the desired level. If the amputee wishes to use the terminal device at this point, first he or she must lock the elbow by doing shoulder depression, extension, and abduction, down, back, and out. Then the patient can operate the terminal device by continuation of the controlled motion, shoulder flexion, and biscapular abduction. The same combination of shoulder movements are done to lock or unlock the elbow, the elbow. Again, shoulder depression, extension, and abduction, down, back, and out. The elbow extends by gravity uh, when unlocked. You can also have myoelectric control sim, um, systems that are externally powered systems for below elbow and above elbow amputees. The myoelectric control relies on activation of muscles in the residual limb or uh, proximal segment the electrical signal produced by voluntary activation of the residual muscles is detected by the surface electrodes incorporated into the prosthetic socket. In below elbow amputations, wrist extensors such as the ECRB and L and ECU are used to operate the terminal device and wrist flexors, the FCR and FCU, are used to uh, close the terminal device. So opening with extension and closing with flexion. In an above elbow amputation, the biceps muscle is used to flex the elbow and close the terminal device while triceps muscle is used to extend the elbow and open the terminal device. The patient can change back and forth between the terminal device and the elbow control by co-contracting the biceps and triceps. With short transhumeral or uh, shoulder amputation, shoulder girdle muscles are used to control elbow flexion and terminal device uh, function. A hybrid control systems may combine body-powered and myoelectric control and the above elbow or shoulder prosthesis. This can reduce the cost, weight, and harnessing of the prosthesis. Electric switches can also be incorporated into the harness or socket if myoelectric control is not available. So when talking about body-powered body versus myoelectric control systems, for the body-powered devices, advantages include that it's less expensive, lighter, more durable, easier to repair, and higher sensory feedback. And disadvantages include mechanical appearance, difficulty to use for some people, and the dependency on motor strength.
for myoelectric devices. Um, there are advantages that include better cosmesis, less harnessing, um, stronger grasp force, and disadvantages include more expensive, heavier, uh, decreased durability due to electrical components, and the need for daily recharging of batteries. Uh, for shoulder prosthesis, all shoulder prostheses consist of terminal device, wrist unit, forearm section, elbow unit, humeral and shoulder sections, harness, and, con and control cable systems. The terminal device, wrist unit, forearm section, and elbow units are identical to those that we previously discussed. The shoulder section includes a socket, which provides comfortable, stable bearing on the residual shoulder element and thorax, and means of utilizing remaining shoulder girdle mobility for control of prosthesis. Some of the issues um, there are uh, for upper extremity amputee care and rehabilitation, there are three important considerations in the clinical decision-making process from a medical standpoint for a prosthesis. First is the determination of amputation level. Second is careful assessment of bilateral proximal muscle strength and range of motion when planning for prosthetic control mechanisms. And third is evaluation of general health and cognition. In upper extremity amputations, general health is typically no different than in the regular population. Exception is for those that have malignancies. You want to assess for conditions that should be treated before the patient is fitted with a prosthesis. Cognitive impairment and other neurological problems can hinder prosthetic training. And the diagnosis of specific residual limb conditions, abnormalities such as bone spurs, uh, tender scars, skin rashes, neuromas, and other conditions are of low statistical importance. When present, many of these can be dealt with uh, by suitable fitting modifications. Other rehab issues including pre include pre-prosthetic training, which is another important aspect of the initial management of the upper limb amputee with physical therapy and occupational therapy. Pre-prosthetic training includes residual limb shrinkage, muscle strength and range of motion, postural problems, desensitization, scar mobilization, ADL assessment, and home exercise programs. Exercises should be prescribed if there are any def uh, deficiencies. Forearm and humeral rotation are the motions most seriously affected. In transhumeral amputations, 80% have limited humeral rotation. And in transradial amputations, 80% um, have limited limitations of forearm rotation. In body-powered malformations, uh, if body-powered malformations, excuse me, if, body, if bony malformations limit range of motion, physical therapy will be of no help. Testing and strengthening muscles in the residual limb may be helpful for future myoelectric control. You also want to consider vocational issues. The terminal device is extremely important in the patient's or in the amputee's vocational success. The greatest occupation effect of amputation is on skilled and semi-skilled laborers who are unable to continue their original occupations. This is a source of emotional maladjustment and reduction in earning power. The prosthetic team should serve in an advisory capacity on any contemplated change in occupation because the patient may be um, able to return to his job with a prosthesis. There's also emotional and psychological issues as well. Although there is no evidence to indicate that the amputee population varies from the general population with regard to emotional stability, psychological problems can act as a deterrent to rehabilitation. And it is a waste of time and money to fit an amputee with a prosthesis and then to accept failure because the amputee does not cooperate fully. There is always a, a period of adjustment to limb loss. Psychological counseling should be made available to all amputees to deal with grieving, anger, and depression. Personal factors also must be taken into consideration. One should consider age, sex, educational history, prosthetic history, and personal preference. In many cases, the educational background completes the picture of the amputee and gives us a better idea of the prescription necessary. Most do not have personal preferences for the prosthesis, but if they exist, they must be explored. If these preferences cannot be accommodated, the reasons must be explained to the amputee. For prosthetic operating, operation and training in the unilateral amputee, the prosthesis uh, generally will be used to assist the remaining limb, allowing a portion of the lost function to be regained. 
the prosthetic device is still far from duplicating the lost, um, the lost part of the patient or the lost part and function, and the patient must be aware of its functional limitations. The training period consists of an orientation of the prosthesis, its controls, and use of the prosthesis, which initially emphasizes ADLs. Introduction to the prosthesis from the, from the pre-prosthetic phase should be repeated, and the patient should be specifically instructed in the correct terminology and function of each component. This understanding will help the patient communicate with the prosthetist if something is wrong. General instruction about the care of the prosthesis should be covered at this time as well. The, the next step for training is instructing for donning and doffing the prosthesis. After this initial instruction, the patient is ready to begin learning the basic motions of operation. The therapist should take the amputee through each required motion so that he, um, so that he or she can see and feel the motion being performed. The patient then repeats the same motion independently. For transradial amputee training, it's, con it's concentrated in operation of the terminal device. Uh, forearm and elbow control require no special training. And myoelectric transradial prosthesis use common, uh, muscle contractions to activate the prosthesis, wrist flexors to close, and wrist extensors to open the terminal device. Body-powered prostheses use forward flexion of the humerus with some assistance from biscapular abduction to open the terminal device. The shoulder on the amputated side should not flex excessively to give a smooth motion. The shoulder on their opposite side acts as a stabilizer. Once the patient has learned the, me uh, the mechanics of the prosthesis and how to use it efficiently, he or she is ready to, uh, for training and purposeful activity. The therapist should present different activities to help solve new problems that inevitably arise in the patient's life. Before attempting any activity, prepositioning of the terminal device is essential. Instruction um, and practice in this uh, prepositioning is necessary. It will allow an amputee to approach an object correctly. Prehension is the final phase of control training before the uh, practice and daily activities is started. Uh, drills in the approach, grasp and release of various sizes and objects uh, of objects and different sizes of materials are used. The amputee is taught to grasp objects and adequate pressure control of the terminal device. Control training may be considered uh, complete when the when the patient um, has maximal control for the terminal device in space. Once basic operations are learned, these techniques are applied to uh, practice ADLs. The amputee should gain confidence in using the prosthesis in a wide range of activities. Initially, the activities of most importance for the amputee are feeding and dressing. For the unilateral amputee, this independence is not difficult to achieve. A prosthesis is not needed to achieve basic independence. Activities chosen should require the use of two hands, such as cutting food with a knife and, for, uh, and fork or tying shoes. As the patient attempts, performs, and succeeds in these activities, he or she becomes more willing to accept the use of prosthesis and can rely on it. After training and feeding, dressing, and grooming is completed, um, specialized activities such as communication skills involving the use of the telephone or keyboard can be addressed. Homemaking, vocational, and recreational interests should be encouraged, and the activities associated with these interests should be emphasized in the, pro in the training process. For elbow disarticulation and transhumeral amputee training, the prosthetic training uh, follows the same general principles for the transradial amputee. Control training of this level of amputee is more difficult because the amputee must now concentrate on locking the prosthetic elbow before using the terminal device. Training with dual control or elbow locking transhumeral prosthesis should not be attempted prior to age three. When the elbow is unlocked, humeral flexion produces flexion of the forearm socket, or forearm section of the prosthesis, uh, elbow flexion. The shoulder on the amputated side should not flex more than is necessary for smooth movement. 
the opposite shoulder acts as a stabilizer. This should be rep repeated by the amputee until the speed of the movement and the angle of flexion are smooth and controlled. An elbow extension with the elbow still unlocked is achieved by slowly bringing the shoulder back to the starting position. The next control motion is for locking and unlocking the elbow. The motion for, uh, is a combination of shoulder depression, extension, and abduction. Again, down, back, and out. This motion should be practiced with the elbow extended until the lock clicks. Once locking and unlocking the elbow uh, can be accomplished smoothly with the elbow extended, the amputee uh, can be taught to flex the elbow and maintain tension on the cable while the elbow, is, elbow lock is used. To unlock the elbow, the amputee repeats this procedure, allowing the forearm to return smoothly to the uh, starting position. When the elbow is locked, additional humeral flexion will operate the terminal device. Um, opening and voluntary opening terminal devices and closing and voluntary closing terminal devices. For the terminal device to be operated closer to the body, rotation of the prosthetic forearm is necessary. To do this, the amputee is instructed to first flex the wrist to 90 degrees and then manually rotate the turntable medially or laterally. So we're going to go ahead and stop there. We've gone over gait and uh, the upper extremity amputations and prosthetics. And we'll, when we pick back up next time, we'll be going through uh, lower limb amputations and prosthetics.